My text comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 84, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 84, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one may appears before you in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold your shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and a shield and the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk upright. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Today I want to talk to you about the Father's good, good house as we embark upon our vision series, as we do every year at this time of years, that culminates in our special offering on the 16th and 17th, where we take up an offering so that we can advance the vision God has given us as a church here in our local community. It's not a pressure offering, so don't feel pressure. It's a prayer offering. Just pray. Come with whatever God lays on your heart that particular day over and above our tithes and offerings, and God will do the rest. But today, I want to talk to you about this very important topic of the Father's house. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, would you speak to each and every heart? Would you give us a better revelation of how much it matters for us to be faithful to your house? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. There is a phenomenon that is happening in the American church. Maybe you've noticed it. Maybe you haven't. Um, For the most part, we've all been a part of it. It's real and it's undeniable. It's happening on the East Coast and the West Coast. It's happening in small churches and big churches, white churches, black churches, Hispanic churches, evangelical churches, non-evangelical churches. I think it'd be better called a pandemic than a phenomenon, and it's that people are growing less and less committed to regular church attendance. The latest statistic says that in churches like ours, the average person shows up 1.7 times a month, and the number's going down. And there are a lot of reasons for it, but primarily in the minds and hearts of people, it's busy schedules and not enough time and other commitments, and the belief, which is partially true, that God loves me anyway and God understands. And even though that's partially true, it's the wrong application of that belief. And so we've been seeing this Um, not just in our church, it's every single church, it's every single pastor. And you all realize it when, uh, for instance, you come at Christmas and Easter time. And at Christmas and Easter time, uh, everybody usually says, Pastor, where'd all these people come from? And uh, do we have a lot of visitors today? And we typically have a lot of visitors, but the visitors are usually only 40 or 50, maybe 60 uh, visitors that particular day. But we'll have five or 6,000 people that weekend. And so the question is, where'd everybody come from? And and I always answer, well, everybody who comes to 
the church 1.7 times a month just all showed up on the same day. And, and so we, we see this phenomenon on a regular basis. And there's this little story that I read in Pastor Vegan's Wednesday night Bible study at 7 o'clock here at the church. I um, read this about two months ago, and it struck me, and I wanted to share it with you. It's from Andy Stanley's book called Irresistible. It says, in 2007, I went on a mission trip with my son to China. During our visit, we invited we were invited to tour an American-owned leather goods factory. The owner was a friend of a friend, and when we arrived, he graciously insisted on serving as our guide. Before we began the tour, he introduced us to a Chinese girl in her 20s who had worked her way from the factory floor into management. He asked if it would be okay if she shadowed us, shadowed us during the tour. Two hours later, we were back in his office for a quick recap. And as we wrapped up, he asked, does anyone have a question? To our surprise, raising her hand to shoulder level, our shadow spoke up. I have a question, she said, turning to me. She asked, are you a pastor? I have no idea where this was going. I had not introduced myself as a pastor. I wasn't even sure it was okay that I was a pastor. We were in China. For all I knew, she was a government plan assigned to follow us all around. Yes, I said, I'm a pastor. What she said next in her beautiful broken English caused the hair to stand up on the back of my neck. By the way, where did that expression come from? If you have hair on the back of your neck, you ought to shave it, don't you think? I mean, <laughs> she said, how good is, is good enough? I recognize your voice. I was stunned. How good is good enough is the title of a little book I had recently published. The manuscript was based on a message I had preached years earlier. She continued, two years ago, someone gave me a CD of your sermon, How Good is Good Enough. I listened to it over and over. Then I asked Jesus to save me and live inside of me. Before I was empty and now I'm full. I wanted to go to church, but there are no churches in my city. I began attending a Bible study in an apartment close to where I live. Sometimes I ride the bus to church, but it's two hours and I'm always late. The bus ticket is expensive and I don't know anyone at the church. Looking to her boss, she said, can I ask the pastor another question? He nodded. Pastor, she said, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? I still haven't recovered from her question. I had no idea how to respond. I still don't. How do you explain thousands of empty churches to a young lady who would ride two hours to attend a church in another town? A young lady who would be there every time the door was opened, if there was a door to open. The Bible study she attended was part of a network of underground churches, what the Chinese government refers to as unregistered churches. Her participation put her at risk. Owning a Bible put her at risk. Talking about attending church in front of her boss put her at risk. Imagine her shock if she were to discover that not only do most American Christians not read the Bible, in most churches there is a closet full of Bibles that have been left behind. I don't remember how I responded. I said something entirely forgettable, but I haven't forgotten her question. It bothered me ever since. Her question is one of the reasons I've written this book. So why doesn't everybody in America go to church? Why is the church so resistible? Jesus wasn't. Once upon a time, his church wasn't either. Can you say amen or oh me? Because either one applies. Why is church so resistible. We can point to all of the problems with the American church and with churches in general, and some of those problems would be fair. But by referring to those problems and pointing to those problems is the reason why 
the average person in a church like ours goes to church 1.7 would be to slough off responsibility that really belongs placed on us. Because dare I say that the problem with our church commitments rarely have anything to do with the problems of the church. In reality, and if we're honest, they have everything to do with us. And dare I say that the American church has lost its first love. That the American church has strayed away from their dependence upon the Lord. That the American church cares more about the American dream than their relationship with Almighty God. The American church cares more about recreation than it does about spiritual formation. And it used to be that we prioritized our church, our, 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 our lives around God and going to the house of God. And now we fit in our church attendance wherever it's convenient. And saints, I don't want to come across as angry because I'm not angry. I'm not angry at all. I'm not trying to scold anybody, but, but I care about you. And I'm, I'm called to be a shepherd that looks out for the souls of the people that God has given me. And so every now and again, I've got to remind us of some truths that we're allowing to let slip. I've got to remind us of a spiritual apathy that this world is trying to pull us into. And I've got to call you back to what the Bible talks about and the commitments that we should have and the priorities that we should have. And, and the priorities that we should have include a priority to the five father's good good house and i'm reminded of the prodigal son because he at one time thought there were better places to be than father's house and he asked his father for his inheritance and he went away from father's house thinking life is better life is funner there are more important things to do and and remember what happened to him he came to a point where he said i know what i'll do when he hit rock bottom he said i will arise go back to my father's house And, and this message is a call for us as a church to arise in our commitment, and return to Father's house, return to the good, good house of the Lord, to get our priorities straight, to not go the way of the world, not be caught up in the climate of the culture, but rather be caught up in the climate of what Christ considers to be important. And so we enter Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is a, is a psalm that is literally a call back to the house of God. Now to understand this, you have to understand what's going on in David's life as David pens this psalm, David has been put on the throne. His ascension to the throne brought with it both accolades and adversity, triumphs to be celebrated and trials to be navigated. At the time of the writing of Psalm 84, David has experienced perhaps, and I probably shouldn't even say perhaps, the, the greatest trial that anyone could ever go through. And the greatest trial that anyone could ever go through is a trial involving their children. When you go through a trial involving you, you deal. When you go through a trial involving another adult, you deal. But when your kids go through something, it's, it's, it's the worst kind of trial that anybody can ever go through. And, well, David's going through one of those trials. David has a son by the name of Absalom. And Absalom means the peace of his father, but this, this child has caused his father nothing but peace. Absalom is banished because he murdered the rapist, of his half-sister, who is also his brother. In other words, one of David's sons raped one of David's daughters, and Absalom rose up in defense of her, and he murdered the brother that raped the sister. And so David has all this going on in his family. And, and, and what's amazing to me is that the Bible actually shares this kind of stuff. Like, you know, you would think it would skip over that kind of, why, why is it even in the Bible? You know, this one's son raped, you know, this one, her, this one's sister and this one's brother killed this one's brother because he raped his sister. And you almost think, you know, what's the point? And I think the point is that the Bible
Bible wants us to know that it's authentic, that it wants us to know it's real. Because anytime you're trying to convince somebody of something that's not true, you drop out all the really bad parts. You hide all the really bad parts. When you're trying to convince somebody, you oversell. But the Bible pulls back the veil on all the warts because it wants us to know there's hope for our messy lives. Because the truth of the matter is our lives are messy. I know we like to think that everybody's life goes in a straight line, but I found out that life goes sideways a lot of times and then snaps back and then goes sideways again. Where do we go? We go to the Word of God, which teaches us that there's hope for our messy lives. And so anyway, Absalom is banished, and for two years he's gone. After about two years, he comes back, and he comes back under the guise that he, he wants to serve the Lord again gets word to his father that he wants to make this big sacrifice at a place called Hebron. And as any parent, when you see your, your child who has done wrong, wanting to now do right, David rejoices. He's so excited about this. He's believing the best about Absalom. He sends 200 of his loyal men to Hebron in order to celebrate this, this sacrifice that Absalom is going to make. And, but Absalom doesn't have sincere motives. He's got a plot. He's charismatic and his manner is charming. He's handsome. His ways are insinuating. He loves pomp and circumstance and royal pretensions. He's favored by his father. He lives in great style. He's got this magnificent chariot. Fifty people run before it all the time. His plan is to draw the people to him as king and away from his father. And so as he's traveling to Hebron with these 200 men, he starts talking about how his father is neglecting the administration of the kingdom. Just, you know, little subtleties. He starts talking about how his father is getting old and his thinking is becoming outdated and he needs some more progressive ways of doing things. And, and so he starts dropping all of these little innuendos and hints and anytime that anybody shows him any type of agreement, he compliments them and he promises them p- positions of prestige and then he plants in the 12 tribes of Israel all around Jerusalem, he plants these political surrogates to kind of push his message out there that he would be a more progressive th- king, that he would do things better and different than the way that his father had done things. And, and he comes up with this plan, and he basically tells them, at the appointed time, I want everybody to give a shout throughout all of the kingdom that Absalom reigns in Hebron. And so sure enough, everybody executes on the pan, uh, on the plan. And the whole land begins to proclaim this Absalom reigns in Hebron and, and, and word gets back to David and everybody thinks that David has either died or resigned because why is Absalom taking over? And suddenly David realizes that all of the kingdom who once had their heart with him, who once sung about David in the streets, about the city that he built, the city of Jerusalem, have now turned their hearts toward Absalom. And as the Bible says, or the Bible puts it, David quits Jerusalem. He leaves Jerusalem. And David has come face to face with one of the sad realities of life. It's called the lonely side of leadership. And that is when you get elevated, you also become targeted. Everybody desires to be leaders. And that's why the Bible says not everybody should. Because you got to know what you're signing up for. And a lot of times when you get elevated to a place, and this happens in the world, this happens in the church, wherever it may be, leadership causes attacks to come your way. And what happens a lot of the time is the enemy doesn't play fair. And so what the enemy does a lot of times is the enemy will hit below the belt in order to, to stop your leadership. Because if the enemy can mess with a leader, he can mess with a lot of people. See, he's learned that targeting one could hurt thousands. And so that's why he goes after leaders all of, all of the time. And in this case, he targets 
David. And David doesn't have an attack against his kingdom or his throne come from the outside. He has attack come from, an attack come from the inside, from his very own son. And this is why we must make sure we have our loins girt about with the belt of truth because the enemy strikes low. And so Absalom is now coming against his father David and David is having to flee the city. What makes matters even worse, what turns the night in even deeper is David's heart is broken further because Ahithophel who was once one of his trusted advisors who David had to fire because Ahithophel began to show disloyalty and get out of line, is now recruited by Absalom to be part of his cabinet. And so now Ahithophel is siding with the son who has risen up against the father, and the knife is being twisted even further because what the enemy will do is the enemy won't hurt you necessarily from the outside because who cares about that? The enemy will try to hurt you from the inside. And so David is getting ready to flee, and David calls the people to him, and he says, if your heart is with Absalom, then stay. But if your heart is with me, then follow. And we learn an important spiritual lesson here. Stop trying to drag people with you that have shown their true colors. Did you hear what I just said? So many people try to convince people, stay. Convince people, don't leave. Convince, convince people, love me. Convi- convince people, treat me right. Here's what I've learned long ago, that if somebody doesn't want to, don't force them to. Remember the sermon, have the gift of goodbye. Bye. Remember 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was a long time ago. I was a staff member. None of you would know or remember, so I could talk about this openly. Anyway, they were a good staff member, but as time went on, they began to, you know, talk about things. Most of it was not untrue. Everything, of course, has a hint of true in it, and that's how they kind of suck people in. And uh, what they would say is, you know, pastor's neglecting the administration. You know, uh, pastor's thinking is outdated. He needs to be more progressive. They weren't really saying that, but I'm just trying to relate it to the story. And they got, you know, a certain group of people to buy in. And, and so I got wind of this. I knew it was going on. And, and, and so, you know, because there are cer- certain things that are correction worthy and there are other things where somebody's exposed their heart. You can't correct a heart that's not in the right place. And so I prayed them. I prayed them out. I said, Lord, remove them. And so sure enough, they came a few weeks later and announced they had found another job somewhere else. And on the, on the inside, I was going, oh, yay. On the outside, I was going, well, we'll bless you on your way out. We'll do you know, some nice things. And so anyway, um, they were going to the airport. And, and the people that they were talking about came to me and they said, Pastor, you can't let them go. You should drive them to the airport. You should try to convince them to stay. And I thought, are you serious? They're stabbing me in the back. You know they're stabbing me in the back, and you want me to convince them to stay. One of the things that I've learned a long time ago is that when people want to go, see down the road, I pray for you. I hope you do well. I won't harbor any bitterness in my heart. But don't convince people to stay with you that don't want to be with you. They will mess up what God has called you to do. And so David says to everybody, he says, look, if your heart is with Absalom, then stay with him. But if your heart is with me, come with me. And one of the groups of people that goes with David are the Gittites. And you might not recognize the Gittites, but you might recognize the city of Gath. Anybody ever hear of the city of Gath? Goliath was from where? Gath, right? He was a giant. And because David defeated Goliath, some of the Gittites who were part of that kind of clan and tribe, they converted to Judaism and they became the bodyguards of David. And so here's the lesson, the spiritual lesson. When you defeat what has been sent to defeat you, it becomes your ally in life. 
That's why you should never run from your battles. That's why you should never fear your battles because your battles truly can make you stronger if you fight the right way. And so David has got these big giant bodyguards all around him and they decide to go with him. And then there are two other people that decide to go with him, the high priest and the high priest's assistant. And the high priest, his name was Abiathar and his assistant's name was Zadok. And Abiathar, the high priest, came to David. And when he came to David, he came carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where we connect to Psalm 84. He came carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And he said, David, if we're going to go with you, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. And here's what David said. You can read all about it. David said, leave the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle or the tent that has been built for it. Leave it here in Jerusalem. Leave the presence of God in the house of God. Even in David's greatest crisis, David still cared more about the health of God's house than he did about his own health. Now watch what he writes. It's during this time when he's estranged from the house of God. Not because he wants to be estranged, but because he can't be there because of this uprising. And he writes Psalm 84. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. David is apart from the tabernacle, apart from the house of God, estranged from the house of God, not because of his own choosing, but because he is forced to flee. And he says, my soul longs to be in your house. And he tells us one very important truth. We should have an intense desire to be in God's house. Compare and contrast David who can't get to church, not because he doesn't want to be there, but because he's not allowed to be there and how he feels. I'm going through my worst moment right now. I'm going through the most difficult time. I need to be in the place where I meet God. I need to be in the place where I hear from God. I need to be in the place where God can speak to me. My soul longs for it. It faints for it. I have this intense craving to be there. Compare and contrast that with 1.7 times a month. Compare and contrast that with the Christian culture in America that says, I'll get there when I can. I'll watch online today, not because I'm sick, not because I'm elderly and can't get to church, not because I'm traveling in a way, but because I just, I just need, I, I just need, I'm busy. I need a break. I want to stay in my pajamas and eat pancakes and waffles. Sorry. I love you who are watching online. Compare and contrast how David feels about the house of God with how we do the house of God. Where is the realization that the house of God is needed for our spiritual formation? Where is our intense yearning and desire to be in God's house? Where is the realization that if we don't have a regular uh, commitment to the house of God, that our soul will faint? And the question is, if our soul no longer longs to worship our Savior in His church, have we lost our first love? Have we wound up doing exactly what the Bible says not to do? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's that mean? As we get further and further into time, as the world spins further and further out of control, we shouldn't stay away from church more we should be in the house of God more. David is telling us we need to have an intense 
craving for God's house. Why? Because number two, we find help and hope in the house of God. David is going through, he's going through one of the worst crises of all times and he knows that the house of God is the place where he can find help and hope, where he can go when he's overwhelmed and be reminded that he's an overcomer, where he can go when he's depressed and be reminded that his destiny is still in God's hand, where when he's hit with adversity, he can be reminded that God is still almighty, where when he's at a loss for answers, he can be reminded that there's a word from heaven, where when life and circumstances have him full of anxiety and worry, he can come and find peace where when the culture has got him confused he can find clarity when where his marriage is a mess he can get a miracle he knows he needs the house of God because that's where we find help that's where we find hope there's certain things you can't get on your own and somebody's saying right now I hear it in your spirit well well I got the same Holy Spirit yes you do but you know God gives different gifts in the church for instance I sing during worship but I really can't sing And so I need others to help usher in the presence of God because when I sing, the presence of God leaves. (laughs) In the same way, we need some people who are gifted to communicate the word of God to us so we can gain understanding and grow and to be developed in our relationship with the Lord. Doesn't mean we have less of a Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean we're less important in the eyes of God, but we need these things in order to grow in the ways of God. And so David is telling us, come back to the house of God. We find help and hope in the house of God. But then he says this, number three, we get the benefits of the house of God only when we are committed to the house of God. Verse number three, even the sparrow has a home. And the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. Blessed are those who visit your house 1.7 times a month. It's amazing how we, we twist scripture to make it say what we want it to say. Blessed are those who do what? Dwell in your house. Dwell in your house. Now, as you're reading this, I'll prove to you why you need the house of God. What in the world is the sparrow and the swallow talking about? Like, you know, do you ever read stuff in the scripture and just go, I have no idea what that means and just kind of skip over it, right? But this is so important and this is why we need to be in the house of God. In one verse it says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar in the tent or the tabernacle that was built for the Ark of the Covenant. Right near the altars, the birds would actually put their nests. And the singing of the birds, many believe, David incorporated into the worship that went on in the house of the Lord. And David would have perfect pitch and his instruments would play along with that and so on and so forth. And what he's literally telling us is this, that we have to have a commitment to live in the house of God. The house of God should be our home away from home. It should be the place that we frequent more than any other place other than our own house. And notice he says, when you have that kind of commitment, he says, blessed are those, blessed are those who dwell in the house of the Lord. Notice what the text goes on to say. He says, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. What's that mean, number four? We are responsible for bringing our children to the house of God. It always amazes me. People will say, parents will say, well, my kids just didn't want to be here. 
How old are your kids? Nine, 10, 12, 13. You don't recognize that that's a problem with your parenting? Oh, Pastor, you serious? You said that, Pastor? Why are you coming at me like that, Pastor? Listen, I love you. I love you. I love you. You, you don't see that if your 9-year-old, 10-year-old, or 13-year-old thinks that they can disobey you, that there's something wrong with your parenting. Something has not been instilled. Something is, is not, now I realize oh, that kids ain't perfect. Kids do stuff. I mean, not everything your kids do bad is a reflection on their parents. I, I understand that. I'm not trying to say that. But you remember the old saying people talk about when I, when I was, when I was young, I, I used to be on drugs. My parents drug me to church every single weekend, right? You ever hear? Yeah, we, we need to have an understanding that is our responsibility to bring our kids to the house of the Lord. And I say this with all the love I can and with personal understanding because my son played every sport imaginable. But if he had a game on Sunday morning, he was in church on Saturday night. If he had a weekend tournament, he was in church on Wednesday night. And I, I think, I haven't seen, you don't see people for three or four months. And you say, well, what, you call them, what, what's going on? You all all right? You know, somebody's sick? Somebody going through something? Oh, no, the, the kids just have sports games. Oh, when do they have sports games? Well, you know, Sunday. So they have sports so, Saturday, games Saturday at 6 o'clock? Well, you know, they, they play like, you know, until like 4 or 5 Saturday. And then, you know, we, we've been out all day. They have, they have sports games Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, 2. Well, no, but you know, school and all that kind of stuff. You, you see my point? My point is this. We, we need to be putting our priorities in our kids the right way. When my kid played sports, here's what the, the rule that we had is that we weren't going to be more committed to a hobby or a sport than we were going to be to the house of God. Because at the end of the day, it's the house of God and what they're going to learn in the house of God that's going to help them for the long run. Right? And I know some people disagree with that, but you are entitled to being wrong. The sparrow brings her young. I have a t-shirt that somebody bought for me. It says, Sunday is for Jesus and football. <laughs> In that order, by the way. It's not football and Jesus. It's Jesus and football. And here's the reason why. Because when the Cowboys lose to the sorry Jets, I need Jesus. So David is, is, is calling us back to the house of God. He's, he's telling us we need this in our lives. And then he tells us why. And this is the second part of, part of the Psalms. The blessings of those who are faithful to God's house. The first blessing is the blessing of still being able to praise. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will, I love the language here, still be praising you. Selah. Ever look at somebody in church and they're a little too enthusiastic about worship? Ever look at somebody like that and you kind of look at them like, it's your deal, man. I don't understand why you're getting all into it like that. You know? But meanwhile, the same people that are going like this at a football game, like, yeah! Uh, nothing wrong with that, but somebody that's getting into worship, something wrong with that. Here's what I've learned. I've learned that there might be something wrong with that person. That person may be going through 
But because they're faithful to the house of God, God has put a blessing on them. And the blessing that is on them is the still be praising blessing. See, David is going through and David has his son who's come against him, but he still be praising it. David has lost his throne, but he still be praising it. David has lost his home, but he still be praising. And here's the thing that you have to realize is there is a, a grace that comes over people that are faithful to the house of God to make it through their storms. That doesn't come on everybody when you're not faithful to the house of God. The second thing that David talks about here, second blessing, is the blessing of growing from strength to strength. Notice verse number five. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Notice the wording. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Can we be honest? I'm going to show you again why you need church. Why, even though you have the Holy Spirit, you need somebody to teach you. Who knows what the Valley of Baca is? One, two, three. See why you need church? Because you look at that, you go, I mean, springs and pools and Valley of Baca and so on and so forth. The Valley of Baca also means the Valley of Sorrows. And, and here's the, the high-level takeaway of the verse. What God is saying is that the things that are supposed to be pools of sorrows into your life become springs in your life. That instead of causing you to stay down, they spring you forward. When you have a commitment to the house of God, God is committed to taking the things that are supposed to take you down and turning them around for your good. But that commitment is not for everybody. That commitment is for those who are faithful to the house of God. But on a deeper level, something else is going on. The Valley of Baca was a place that was you had to pass through to get to Jerusalem to get to the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And and or the tent or the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. And and every year at the feast times, everybody would travel from around Jerusalem to the tabernacle to go and worship the Lord. That's why it says those who are committed to pilgrimage. But when they got to the Valley of Baca, many times it was filled with water so high that it was un- impassable. You couldn't get through. Now, let's compare that and contrast that with the American church. Imagine you're on your way to church. <laughs> late, of course. <laughs> Did I just say that? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. And, and, and you go to church, and all of a sudden, you come across a pool that's impassable. What do most people do? Oh, I tried. Let's go out to bre- breakfast. Maybe Denny's is open. <laughs> Think about that in light of, of this picture. Check out this picture. That's a church in Thailand. Could you imagine if our church had water up that high? And I said, we still have in church. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. You know one of the assistant pastors would be preaching that week because I'm not going to waste a message on like four people that are here. Just joking, just just playing with y'all. These people, their church is flooded out. It's packed. There's people outside. Why? Different kind of commitment. To the house of God. People ask all the time, I don't understand why we don't see the book of Acts in the American church. Because we don't do that in the American church. Because we're not committed to the house of God and to the things of God in the American church like they are. But you go to Thailand and you go to China and you go to Africa. And they not only go to church in water like that. They don't have air conditioned. Many times they just have a big tent up. And they have church for five, six, seven hours. They have miracles show up. See, David is saying 
that there's a blessing to those that are committed that nothing's going to keep me from the house of God. Bad weather's not going to keep me from the house of God. God forbid it rains hard on a Sunday. I'm still smiling. I'm not mad. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not, I promise you, I'm not, I hate being a mad preacher. You know, I always want to mean and stuff like that. Now, if it rains across America, church attendance goes down 30%. If it rains, God forbid, there's a flurry. Oh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden people get worried about like they're going to crash. You know, and fl- I understand if it's a snowstorm, but I always look when it flurries outside. I always watch the football games and the stadiums are still packed. I'm thinking, I had 60,000 people show up to a stadium when it was flurrying, but a few thousand can't show up in the house of God because it was, and God forbid the weatherman even forecast a flurry. You don't even bother getting up to check. You're like, oh, it's going to snow today. I must stay home from church. See, do you understand what's happening? Something's going on where we're losing our spiritual uh, uh, prowess. We're losing our spiritual strength, our spiritual commitment. And David says, when you're committed to church, when you're even willing to walk through the valleys, when nothing's going to keep you away from the house of God, bad weather isn't going to, and an offense isn't going to, and a a little of this or a laziness, nothing. I'm going to the house of God. When you have that kind of commitment, David said, here's the blessing. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is in you is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before their God. What's he saying? When you're committed to the house of God, you get stronger and stronger. You get stronger in your faith. You get stronger in your marriage. You get stronger in your health. You get stronger in your finances. You get stronger in your relationship. You get stronger in your convictions. You go stronger and stronger when you're committed to the house of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Here's what it says. It says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, most of us think what this means is when you pray, if you wait on God to answer, your strength will be renewed. How many of you know when you wait a long time for anything, your strength is not renewed? Hello? Right? Like, you, you pray, and, like, it takes, like, three months. Most people, if it takes three days, they're like, oh, I'm afraid at work, you know? That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about tapping your foot, waiting for God to come. It literally means wait as in a server, a waiter or a waitress would wait upon the Lord, would wait on a person. So here's what it means. When you're about your father's business, when you're like, you know what? Ain't nothing keeping me from the house of God. I'm going to go serve my Lord today. I'm going to go be my best in God's house today. I'm going to do whatever I can for the Lord. When you live a life like that, your strength will be renewed. You will run. You will not get weary. You will walk. You will not faint. It's that kind of commitment. This is what God is talking about. I remember when I was about 14 years old, um, and I felt called in the ministry, but I didn't think I was called because I wasn't living right. Um, I, I, I was still going to church, and I was faithful to God's house. And this is back in the day when it took a little something to be faithful to God's house. It don't take anything to be faithful to God's house to, these days. Back in the day when I was faithful to church, you'd have to get there. You know, service was at 11, but Sunday school was at 9. And so you go to church at 9. Nobody get there like, 30 minutes after Sunday school started. Everybody get there like 10, 15 minutes before Sunday school started. 
Sunday school would be at 9, and Sunday school was always like an hour 15, hour and 30 minutes because the Sunday school teachers were always the frustrated preachers, and so they were always long-winded. And you go to church and you'd be in Sunday school for an hour and a half. And then after an hour and a half of Sunday school, everybody have coffee and refreshments and stuff. And then real church, the service, would start at 11 o'clock. And the services back in the day, they weren't an hour and 15 to an hour and 30 minutes. Uh -huh. They were like two hours before the preacher was up to the altar call. And every stinking week... Every stinking week, the pastor would have an altar call, not just for salvation, but for prayer, right? Every single week. And the same crazy 10 people would come up every single week for the same thing over and over again. You know, and you couldn't leave, you know, because if you left, the preacher would call you out. The mothers in the church would call you out. If you were young, the mothers in the church grabbed you by the ear and say, sit down, you disrespecting the house of God, bring you over. And you had to stay until all that mess was over. By the time you got home, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And then they had Sunday night at six o'clock church. You know what Sunday night at 6 o'clock church is? It's hell. It's hell. You get home at 3. You know, you're home at 3. And like you just get you some macaronis, you know. You catch it like the last 15 minutes if the Cowboys played early. You start watching the first half of the late game if they're playing. And right about the time of the second half, it was time to get up and go back to church again. And don't think about missing church. Because if you miss church, first of all, you ain't going to be a leader if you're not a Sunday night. Second of all, the pastor show up at your house after church is over. He'd be like, why weren't you at church today? <laughs> pastor, I was there for four hours in the, in the morning. Yeah, but we had Sunday night church. Why weren't you at Sunday night church? This is when you needed a commitment to the house of God. And at Sunday night church, it was different. Sunday night church was kind of like Pentecostal time. Right? I grew up in the, in, in the church. It was Pentecostal time. It was, when, it was when they brought in guest speakers and stuff like that. And so this particular Sunday night, I'm, I know I'm called in the ministry. And some of you may have heard me say this before. But, but I, I don't feel called because I'm not living right. Because how many of you know that one of the things the devil will try to do is try to dissuade you from serving God if you're not living right. That's why, generally speaking, if people have issues, we don't remove them from ministry. You know why? Because we'd have to remove everybody from ministry. And because when you punish people, and I realize there are certain things that, you know, are required of certain other people. I'm not trying to say that. But we, we like God to be able to use people so they can see it's the goodness of God that leads them to repentance and getting right. Okay? And so I, I wasn't living right, so I thought I wasn't called into ministry because the church will tell you that in order for you to be called into ministry, you have to have a perfect life. But then all of a sudden, as I got older, I read about the Apostle Paul who was called when he was murdering the church. And I realize that God can call you even when you're messed up. And matter of fact, God does call you when you're messed up because God loves taking people who are messed up and making miracles out of them. But I didn't know that. I, I had no idea. So, but I was faithful to church. And it was this evangelist, and it was Evangelist Jackie. And, and, and back in old church, during altar call times, don't make eye contact with the evangelist. Because they will call you right out. Right? And so, you know, I, w I was sitting in the front. The altars were full because she, she called some people forward. And I, and I knew not make, don't make eye contact with her. So I kind of put my head down and then act spiritual, start praying in the Holy Ghost. You know, they think you're interceding for them so they won't call on you. 
Because they, when they called on you back in the day, they would be like, um, the Lord is telling me there's somebody in here that's sleeping with their girlfriend that's about 14 years old. You, you, I think it's you right there. Come on up here. And you're like, and you know they write. So you'd be like, oh, gee. and you feel like if you say no, like you're disobeying God or something like that. And, they're call, and then they call like all the elders and everybody else. Yeah, this young right, man, man right here, he's sleeping with his girlfriend and we need to pray. And your mom is there and your dad is there and everything. You're like, oh, dear God, everybody knows my business now, right? You know? So you try to not make eye contact with nobody in old church. But I went to church. And I was doubting whether I was called an evangelist Jackie. She said like this. She said, she said, you got my head down, so I had no idea. She said, you with the red shoes. That was me. She said, God just told me you're doubting whether you're called in the ministry, and I want you to know you are. What happened? Even though I was weak because I was committed to the house of God, I went from strength to strength. Do you see what happens when you go to the house of God? When you go to the house of God, though you come in one way, you leave another way. Though you come in feeling weak, you leave feeling strong. You come in feeling depressed, you leave feeling like there's hope. Something happens. There is an impartation when you come into the house of God. You all know what it is. You come in here and all of a sudden you feel like everything's great and then you get back to the world and by Monday you're down again. But thank God for the up for two or three hours on Sunday that lets you know there was a little hope in life again. Stronger and stronger. I met my wife in church. Little 50-person church, same church that Evangelist Jackie was there. Like maybe from here to like the third row. That was the size of the church. And so when the back door opened, everybody looked. I remember the day I was up in the front talking with the pastor. The back door opened and in walked my, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, and, and, and my wife. And, and the way I remember it is my wife looked up in the front. She took one look at me. She jumped every pew to come say hello. That's my story. I'm sticking with it. But I know this. I know that I've got stronger and stronger because of church. Right? The last thing I want to share with you is the fourth blessing when we're faithful to the house of God is the blessing of greater revelation of who your father is. Do you know why most people fail in their faith? Most people get discouraged. Most people get beaten up by life and never recover. Is because they don't have a proper understanding of who their father is. They see, they see their father as just God. God. Distant. Disinterested. Disengaged. You know, he doesn't care. He's got the galaxies and the, the universe and the world to run. He doesn't really care about little old me. And because they see him as God, instead of, remember the message I preached, he might be your God, but he's my father. Instead of seeing him as God, we come to church and we learn that he's our daddy. He's our father. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing that's too difficult for him. That, that, that God flung the stars into their spot in space. That God put the planets in their orbit. That God commanded the seas to come no further. And if I'm sick, God can heal that. If my marriage is a mess, God can restore that. If my kids run astray, God can bring them back. Instead of realizing that he's our father, we think he's God. But when we come to church, we get this understanding, this revelation of who God is. And so David David is kind of talking about, I need the house of God. I'm craving for the house of God. I can't wait to get back to the house of God. And then he goes into telling us what he, we learn about God when we're faithful to God's house. First thing he learns is, notice verse 8, O Lord God of hosts. What's that mean? The hosts are the angels. The God of angels' armies. When we come to church, we're reminded that God's army is bigger than any army that's coming against you. 
Some of you are here today and you've had an army coming against you. An army of financial setback, an army of a health crisis, an army of a family uh, person or people that have passed away or an army of a marriage that's going in the wrong direction, an army of a job of people, an army's coming against you. And you come to church and, and you need to be reminded that God's army is bigger than that, that all it takes is for God to fight for you. All it takes is for God to dispatch some angels on your behalf. And when God's army gets involved, God can turn that situation around. David said, God of hosts. Then he says, second thing we learned about God, my father answers my prayers because of my mediator, Jesus. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. Now we think that this means that we're asking God to look upon our face. But when you pray, the last face you want God to look upon is yours. What you want God to do is look upon the face of his anointed. Who is his anointed? It's Jesus. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the God. What's he doing? He's making intercession. He's your mediator. And so when you pray, when God looks over at Jesus, it's not your face that he sees, but it's Jesus' face in you that he sees. And the reason why God answers your prayers is because you have a mediator named Jesus. And when you come to church, you're reminded of that, that it's God not looking at you, but it's looking at you through the lens of Christ. And that's why your prayers get answered. And then he says this, he says, when you come to church, you remember your father is a God of Jacob's. Verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. What's that mean? That's like a, you know, an old phrase. Jacob was a conniver. He was a thief. He, he was a no good person. But God says, I was the God of Jacob. And you remember what God did with Jacob? God turned Jacob into Israel. He turned this conniver, this thief, into the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. What's that mean? When you come to church, you're reminded that God is the God of Jacob's, that God doesn't take flawed people and discard them, that God doesn't take mistake-ridden people and throw them away, that what God does is he takes those messes and he turns them into miracles, that even though you may have come in here today, maybe you're a conniver, maybe you're a thief, maybe you're doing this or doing that, God's calling you to let you know that God can still make something beautiful out of your life you come to church you realize he's a God of Jacob's and then David is like he's just kind of like in it now and he's 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 kind of remembering the goodness of God and the house of God and he has a little praise break and here's what he says and this is really the verse that God led me to verse 10 he says for day in your courts is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be in church, modern day translation. I'd rather be in church than at the movies. I'd rather be in church or God's house than out for dinner. I'd rather be in God's house than in my pajamas around the breakfast table. I'd rather be in God's house than at a sports game. I'd rather be in God's house than out on the town. I'd rather be in God's house than in a fancy vacation. I'd rather be in God's house. Don't look at me like I got the problem. What's your problem that you'd rather be somewhere else? Where did your spiritual fiber go? Come on back to God's house. Better is one day. Better is one day. Better is one day. Better is one day. Better is one day, one day, one day than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day. 
is that we won't just sing it, but we'll mean it. It's my prayer. And so David has his little praise break. Stay standing. We're going to close here in a second. He has his little praise break, and then he kind of wraps up the psalm. And he says this, that when you come to church, when you come to God's house, you realize that my father is a sun and a shield. What's that mean? Sun gives light. How many of you know that the world's getting darker and darker? That everything we believed, every moral that we have is being challenged in every way. And if you come to church 1.7 times a month, you will be a Christian that is worldly in every way. We need light. We need somebody to give us clarity on a dark path. And then we need protection. Protection from the filth. Protection from the culture of this world. Not that we should be apart from it. We should be in the world, but not of the world. We should be impacting the world and changing the world. But when we're disjointed from the place that we get our strength, what winds up happening is the world infects us. He says, you learn that your father is your son and shield. And then he says, he says, for the Lord will give grace and glory, shower favor, and our inheritance. That's glory, our inheritance as sons and daughters. He'll give that to us. We remember that. And then here's what he says. And this is, this is not to be taken out of context. He says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk up uprightly. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. I come to church whenever it's convenient. And I get every good thing heaven has to offer. I know that's what we want the verse to mean. But it's not what the verse means. It doesn't mean I I make God convenient and then God does whatever I need him to do. That's not what it means. It means no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What is an upright walk? It requires a commitment to the house of God. He says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. In the context, this is the person who prioritizes you in every way. This is the person who has a passion for the things of God. This is a person that is that committed that will walk through troubled waters, that will walk through the valley of Baca, that will be committed to the pilgrimage, no matter whether it rains, no matter whether it snows, no matter whether it's convenient or not convenient. This is what God is talking about. And this is what this message is. It's a call back. To the things of God.